Good morning. Will you uh, join me for a moment of prayer? Let's ask God's blessing on our service. Merciful, gracious, loving Father, we pray that you would be with us today and that you would show yourself powerfully evident among your people this morning. We are not here to be educated or to be amused or to join in the singing or even to greet one another. We are here expressly to bring you worship and praise and thanksgiving and to express our love for you, our adoration for who you are. To that end, uh, Father, we want to continue to worship you through the proclamation of your word and ask you to give us willing hearts and listening ears and understanding minds. We pray this for the glory of Christ and his church and in his name. Amen. When I was in high school, I was a sophomore and I had a girlfriend who was a senior. And that worked out okay until she graduated at the end of the year and went off to college. And so the next year as a junior, I missed her terribly and I didn't think I could live without her. So it just so happened that because I was in debate and music, I didn't have any study halls and I had accumulated enough credits to, to graduate at the end of the year if I could take some night classes. So halfway through my junior year, I took some night classes at the community college. I accumulated all of my, my credits, and it just so happened that in spite of not having the classes that you take at senior, the, as a senior year, you're the college prerequisites, but it, I, it just so happened that they accepted me based on my, my GPA, and off to college I went. And it just so happens within the first quarter, my girlfriend dumped me, and there, <laughs> there I found myself at a university I did not plan to go to. I was gonna go to the University of Washington where all of my other friends went, but I ended up in Eastern Washington in the middle of Podunkville, and I hated it there. I was so terribly lonely. And then it just so happened as I was walking back from debate class, the debate, the, the, the communications building, the music building, and the arts building were on the other side of campus. It was a long walk back to the mall. And as I was walking back to the mall, it just so happened, I saw this beautiful girl that, that there's just something about her. It was just, something in the way she moved, attract me like. And, and I saw her walking the other way. You know, there she was, just a walking down the street. And, and I spun around and I, and I walked her back to class. And it just so happened she was going right past the, um, the, the, the debate class. And so I, I walked her back there. And it just so happened that we were both in the same uh, college fellowship. So for the next four years, you know, although we weren't dating all that time, we were, we were friends and we knew each other. And here's the best part. It just so happened that Connie's boyfriend married my girlfriend. How about that? <laughs> I think it's really interesting how so many times in our life what we see as being coincidences or fortunate turns of event are really God working behind the scenes. The thing is, you never know that when it's happening. You think this is fortunate or, or I got away with it that time or something like that. But you never see until after the fact when you look back and you go, oh my goodness, God was at work in my life. I could see the hand of God at, at work in my life. And uh, we, that's kind of what the book of Ruth is all about. There was an author by the name of Wallace Hamilton, and he wrote this story, true story about this mother cat in New York City. And the mother cat was trying to carry one of its kittens across this busy intersection, and the cat would get partway out into the intersection, a car would honk, and she would dart back 
to the curb again. Well, a New York um, City officer saw this whole thing, and so he comes out and he holds his hand up and he stops traffic so the cat can then come across, and so the cat walks across the road, disappears down the alleyway, and then Hamilton points out this cat had no idea that the, the, the power of New York City Police Department had enabled it to cross the street safely. And that's an illustration of so much of our life. You know, God's doing something powerfully in our life, and we have no idea that it's God at work behind the scenes. We just see it as a coincidence. And really, it is a God-directed incident in our life. So there are a number of these just-so-happened incidences. I'm sure you can think of them in your life. And we can look through the Bible, and we can find bunches and gobs of such incidences. Remember, um, Joseph, Joseph's brothers wanted to kill Joseph. They'd had enough of him. They threw him down in the cistern while they're trying to decide what to do with him. And it just so happens that these Ishmaelites or Midianites, same, same people, just so happened to be coming along in this caravan to go trading with down to Egypt. So his brothers decided it would be more to their advantage to sell him as a slave than to murder him, and off to Egypt he goes. Or Moses' mother, there's an edict from the Pharaoh to kill all the boys, and Moses' mother doesn't want to kill him. She puts him in a basket, launches him down the river. He gets tangled up in some weeds, and it just so happens that the Pharaoh's daughter is down there at that place at that time, and she finds her, hears the baby crying, and instead of Moses being killed as an infant, he grows up in Pharaoh's court. He's educated among the greatest minds and schools in Egypt or Mary. Uh, we talk about Mary, the mother of Jesus. She's been told by the angel that she's going to give birth to the Messiah. Only the problem is the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, and she's in Nazareth. And it just so happens that right when Mary's supposed to deliver a baby, a decree goes out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. You know the Christmas story. And so Joseph has to bring Mary to, of all places, Bethlehem, where the Messiah is to be born. What's well, another example? Paul and Silas, they're in prison in Philippi. Um, it looks miserable for them. And it just so happens at midnight there's an earthquake that opens up the prison, loosens their shackles, and a, and a great, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Revival starts out in this Macedonian uh, city. Again, I suppose that nobody recognizes the hand of providence when it takes place. It's always after the fact that you trace the hand of God, whether it's in the scripture or in your own life. None of these people, as they're going through it, would, would have said, God is at work here. They would have said, what an interesting set of coincidences we're, we're going through. Now, as we look through the book of Ruth, the primary emphasis through the whole book of Ruth is the providence of God. And it just so happens that that's what the text is about today. So please take your Bible, turn with me to Ruth chapter 2. Open up your Bible halfway, open it up halfway again to the left. If you end up at anything that starts with a one or a two, you keep moving to the left. So Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then you start into the ones and twos. Um, Ruth chapter two. Again, the story takes place, we're told in verse one, chapter, chapter one, verse one, the story takes place during the time of the judges. It's a rather dark and and immoral time in Israel's history. There's no one telling them how to follow the Lord. Each man does according to what he thinks is best. And what's happening here is a cycle of Israel sinning 
and moving away from God and then God bringing um, a, a, a judgment against them by foreign invasions and then God raising up a judge, someone who delivers them from these foreign invaders. And with each cycle, each judge gets less moral and ending with Samson and each revival gets less phenomenal. And here in this story of Ruth, God is judging his people by bringing a famine on the land. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter 1. There's this fellow in Bethlehem by the name of Elimelech. And Elimelech decides this is not a good place to stay. He hears that there's food to be had in Moab. So he takes his family, his wife Naomi and his two sons, and they migrate to, to Moab. Uh, shortly thereafter, Elimelech dies. The two sons predictably marry Moabite women, something that they were not, Jews were not supposed to um, intermarry, especially with the Moabites. And here, Elimelech's sons both marry Moabite women, and then they die. Now, Naomi is left without a son, without any uh, male covering, without, without a husband or anybody else to take care of her. And these two daughters-in-laws who are Moabites. And she hears that God has visited his people. He's literally brought bread back to Bethlehem, which means house of bread. And so she decides she's going to head back home, go back to Bethlehem. She and her two daughter-in-laws head back to Bethlehem. Somewhere along the way, Naomi tries to talk her Moabite daughters-in-laws out of coming with her. They, she tells them, look, it's going to be better off for you um, because you're because of this this racial difference between the Israelites and the Moabites, it'd be better off for you if you didn't come with me any further. Go back to your own families. Go back to your to your own gods. Go back to your people. There's a better chance that you'll find someone to marry among the Moabites. You're certainly not going to find someone to marry in Israel. They will, they will have nothing to do with you. Orpah takes her advice and she heads back. Ruth, however, does not take Naomi's advice. Ruth pleads with Naomi not to try to send her away. And this is the astounding thing. Just like Abraham, Ruth leaves her family. She leaves her people. She abandons her gods. And she goes with Naomi to the promised land where she will embrace the God of Israel. And she promises to live among Israel's people, die there and be buried there. She is that committed to following Israel's God. They arrive at Bethlehem. There's this greeting. People recognize Naomi. They're happy to see her. Naomi says, you know, life has really been bad for me. It's been really depressing. Don't call me pleasant. That's what Naomi means. Call me Mara, which is bitter. Not that she is bitter, and not that God has made her bitter, but more to the point that the, the path she has walked on, the, the life experience she's had, have been a very bitter experience. And the chapter ends um, with, which, with what might appear to be an insignificant statement. The chapter ends by saying, and it just so happened that Naomi and Ruth arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. She left at the beginning of famine. She arrived at the beginning of harvest. And that's where our story picks up today. There she's... She's arriving at the beginning of the harvest. This is March, and we're going to be finding out that she stays at least through the end of July, which would have been the end of the wheat harvest. 
But here they are at the time when there's the most abundant time of the year um, for, for these people. Does that, does that sound like a coincidence that God has brought them back from the famine to the abundance at, at this particular time? Ruth chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband, her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. Uh, the author here introduces Boaz, although this is out of time sequence. It has nothing to do with the story the, the, the storyline at this point, but she brings, he brings in Boaz in order to emphasize who Boaz is. And we're told here he's a worthy man. This is really interesting because in Hebrew this word can mean noble or it can mean influential. It is often, the same word is often used as someone who is a war hero, a decorated war veteran, or a, a mighty man, a, a man of valor. Uh, more about him later, but just note here that he's introduced only for emphasis. He's not yet part of the story. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, Naomi and Ruth are arrived at uh, Bethlehem, and they have arrived in great need. They have all the same needs that we would have. They have the need for, for, for family and acceptance and, and love and emotional support and spiritual wholeness. But right now, there is a more urgent need, and that is the need to survive so that they can pursue these other needs. You have to live. So they have the, the need for sustenance at this point. But it just so happened that Moses has provided the answer for such a question because there is a law among the, Moses which said that you are, uh, were, let's see, Deuteronomy, no, Leviticus 19, I don't know, somewhere in there. But the law said, when you harvest your field, you're not to harvest right up to the edge. But, and you're to leave something for the gleaners so that they have something to eat. And when you're gathering the sheaths together, don't gather everything. Leave something else for, for the poor and for the foreigner. And so so uh, this is what Ruth is asking of Naomi. She's asking permission because she's under Naomi's headship at this point. She's the foreigner under her mother-in-law living in her mother-in-law's uh, community. And so she's asking if, uh, if she can go and glean. This is an important thing, too, because gleaning is honorable work. It's something that the poor do, but it's work. It's work. And the thing is, in that culture, you were able, if you were poor, to work so that you could eat. They were very sympathetic towards the people who were disadvantaged, but they were completely unsympathetic toward the indolent. If you were not willing to work, you could starve, and nobody would, give, would care that much if, if, you, if you starved to death. So here's this provision for, uh, for the, the poor to, to gather among the, the sheaves and on the edges of the field that were deliberately to be left. That way the rich people would have a way of be, showing how generous they were. If you're particularly generous, you could leave a larger margin and the, and the gleaners would have more to pick from. We used to live in a farming community and at harvest time, you know, everybody's aware it's harvest time at harvest time, and everybody is employed. There's no, uh, there's no random do-nothing people during harvest time. Everybody's doing something. You're driving a truck. You're running a combine. 
my job was, we had an old grain elevator that was on an old railroad siding. And I was one of only a couple people that knew how to run this grain elevator because it was such an antique. So it was just assumed that was what I did every harvest time. You know, I would go live out at this grain elevator and move the grain elevator around depending on what farmers came in. But the point is, it's, it's, big, it's a big happening during harvest time in a, in a rural community. And that's kind of the picture of what's happening here at Bethlehem. You know, it's, everyone's aware this is harvest time, and everyone's employed doing something during the harvest time. And it's at this time that, that Naomi, or excuse me, Ruth is asking Naomi, would you mind terribly if I went out? That's an odd thing, because you think, well, of course you can go out. But there's a reason why she has to ask. Um, there's, she's asking because they need to survive. And Naomi gives her permission to go, and so Ruth goes out. She doesn't know at this point where she's going, because she's not familiar with the territory. So Ruth, the foreigner, she looks like a foreigner, everybody knows she's a foreigner, goes out to glean uh, in the harvest. Uh, verse 3. So she set out and went out and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. This is a really curious thing. Verse 3 reads, As it turns out, Ruth found herself working in the field of Boaz. It, Literally, in the Hebrew, it says, her chance chanced upon the field of Boaz. So it's as luck would have it. It just so happened that of all the places she could have been, she ends up in the field of Boaz. She doesn't know anything at this point. Nobody knows. Well, you know because you've already read the story. But nobody knows at this point that there's any significance to her being in this field of Boaz. And if that weren't enough, it just so happened that while she's working, following the gleaners, okay, so the, the men are running the sides, and they're mowing down the, the stalks of grain. The women come up behind, and they're bundling up the stalks of grain into these, into these sheaves. Some of the, the stalks, some of the, the grain heads and the, and the stems fall out, because you, you can't gather 100% of it. So there's the gathering of the stuff that falls from the sheaves as they're bundling it and as they're carrying it, and then there's also the edges of the field which aren't mowed. So she's with the women that are bundling up the, the sheaves of grain and bringing them, them in. But it just so happens that while she's doing that, lo and behold, Boaz shows up. Now, he's the owner here, and all of these guys are his employees. It just so happens, as luck would have it, and again, the, the, the Hebrew here is, behold, Boaz shows up from Bethlehem, arrives from Bethlehem. It's an interesting, fortuitous conversion, because after this, you know, I just got through telling you she stays through the wheat harvest. There's no mention of Boaz through the rest of this episode. He shows up. Then, if he had showed up at any other time, they would have missed each other. You know, if Ruth had decided to harvest tomorrow and not today, would have never met Boaz. For some reason, Boaz just so happens to show up to check out the labor in his field at this time. So wouldn't you know it, there's this happy, fortuitous convergence of events. Lo and behold, while Ruth is working, Boaz shows up. 
you know, I've heard people say, well, you know, as Christians, we don't believe in luck. We don't believe in chance because we believe in a sovereign God. You know, we, I've heard people say, as Christians, you shouldn't say it just happened or uh, perchance or, you know, lo and behold, because we believe in a sovereign God. But, you know, Jesus did that. Jesus talked about it. If anybody understood the sovereignty of God, I'm thinking Jesus probably had a good grip on the idea. But Jesus, remember when he's talking about the... Uh, Good Samaritan and, and the guy that gets beat up and left on the side of the road. And what does he say? And perchance, it just so happened, as luck would have it, a priest is walking along the road. So Jesus says that. He says, it just so happened. This is a happy coincidence. It just so happened. And again, the, the text literally says, uh, by chance, a priest going down the same road. So coincidentally, a priest is going down. The point is, it's okay for us to use terms like that. You don't have to, to be overly cautious about saying something is a coincidence or it happened by chance. Yes, we believe in the sovereignty of God, but you know, even Jesus talks about it. The point is, it appears to us to be completely a coincidence. I mean, how do we know where, where God is working and how God is steer, steering? It's totally appropriate for you to say, from everything that I can perceive, it looks like it's a coincidence because we don't know what God is doing. It's, it's fine to say that because we mean it seems to be an accident. It seems to have occurred without any calculation on our part. But we recognize that lying behind all of these coincidences is the sovereign hand of God. Now, you know why that's important? Because that comes up in our understanding of salvation, it, that so much appears to be a coincidence or a appears to be by chance. Again, going back to the Joseph story, Joseph is uh, thrown into the cistern. By chance, the Midianites show up at the right time, just when the, the critical po point happens. By chance, Joseph is sold in Egypt. By chance, he does well in Potiphar's family until he runs afoul of Potiphar's wife. By chance, he ends up in this dirty, dank, prison, miserable, and it just so happens that there in the prison he meets the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, and it just so happens that the butcher, baker, and candlestick maker are in there because for some reason the pharaohs torqued with them, and it just so happens that Joseph interprets these dreams, and the cupbearer mentions that to Pharaoh, and it just so happens that shortly thereafter we find Joseph as the CEO of the most powerful country in the world at that time. And it just so happened that there was a, a famine in the land when Joseph is at the, the number two position in, in Egypt. It just so happened that there was a famine in the land and Joseph was in a position to do something about it. He rescued not only the people of Egypt, but he rescues his brothers who just so happened to come down in need of food and they encountered Joseph in this part of the redemption story. All of this you know, by chance. And we see that too, like I said, in, in our own story of redemption. From everything that it appears to us, it looks like, it seems like, our experience tells us that when salvation was offered to us, we made a good decision and we embraced it, we accepted it. In reality, this is what happened. You know 
that salvation is all from, from the Lord. Even the faith that you exercise to believe God is a gift from him, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. Everything is from God. And so from our experience, from what we can tell, we made a good decision at one point to accept Jesus Christ, to exercise our free will, to place our faith in him, to repent and turn. We acted. And no sooner do you find yourself through the narrow gate that you turn around and you look at the backside of the gate, and what does it say? It says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. So there's some interesting combination that's going on from what we can tell, from our perception, our, our, we, we see it as being a, a coincidence. We exercised our free will. Yes, you did. But at the same time, God was working sovereignly to manipulate these circumstances in your life. This blend of sovereign action and human free will is what's happening right now in the book of Ruth. You know, God is acting. We see that. God is working behind the scenes. But all of these things that are happening are just a coincidence of people just doing what the people do. So the lesson that we learn from Ruth is that God is always at work behind the scenes. He's accomplishing his own purposes. And then nothing occurs in the book of Ruth or in your life that's purely, strictly by chance. And so when we see these day-to-day -day encounters that we call accidents of history, we're also acknowledging that God uses ordinary means, ordinary events to advance his purposes. Back to the field. So here's Boaz and he shows up. He's the property owner. He's checking on the progress of the harvest. What he says is lost to us in English. It's an unconventional greeting. He doesn't say shalom, Shalom Alechem, and then they would reply, Alechem Shalom. He, he says, it's, it's, a, it's, it's very religious, it's deeply acknowledging of, of God, but it's an atypical greeting, and he receives an unusual response back. So we get from this that he's, he's, he's a religious man. Um, but, his, like I said, his greeting is rather unconventional. And his employees know that he's a religious man, and they greet him back in kind. It doesn't say they're religious, but at least in, as, as a courtesy back to his greeting, they, they greet him back in a, in a religious manner. Now, what do we know about Boaz? Well, we know that he's an older man at this point. He's not, I don't know how old he is, but, he's, but Ruth is a young woman, and Boaz is um, much older than she is. We know that by this point, we know that Boaz is a man of, of character. Uh, he's a man of uh, great standing in the community. We know that uh, whatever we learned about Elimelech in chapter 1, we learned that Boaz is practically the opposite guy. What, is, what do we learn about Elimelech first? Elimelech, when things get tough, the tough stay behind because Elimelech bailed out and he went... When God was judging Israel, Elimelech bailed out and went to, to Moab. But Boaz is facing the same crisis, and he stays in Bethlehem, where the Jews are supposed to remain. He stays firm through the hard time. We know that during that famine, even though Elimelech went to where the food was, things did not go well for him. I mean, obviously he died. That's not a good thing. And... 
He doesn't know it because he's dead already, but his sons died too. So in no way would we say, looking back on it, that he prospered. We would say that it was a bad move that got worse and worse. In the meantime, Boaz is in Bethlehem, and it appears that he's, he's doing well through, through all of this because now he's the, he's the landowner. He's in charge. He's prospering. Another thing we know that Elimelech, when things got tough in Israel, he saw Moab as being the source of his deliverance. Where Boaz would see Moab as being the source of enmity. These people are not your friends. Don't mingle with them. See, there's quite a contrast here. Anyway, let's move on. Verse 5. Then Boaz said to his young men, who was in his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Uh, she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. And so she came and she's continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. So true to his stated character, Boaz, you know, when he comes on the scene, we know that he's a, the, the, the author here tells us that he's, he's a man of God, um, that he shows care and interest in his workers, and that he, he blesses those under his care. So the, the author here is trying to show a deliberate threefold comparison. I've just given you three of, of Boaz with the character qualities of Ruth. And the, um, Boaz doesn't know who this woman is. But obviously, he shows up at his field and he recognizes he doesn't know her. It's a small town. You know, Bethlehem is a, is a podunk village at this point. It's not a significant place. It will be when David is on the scene. But at this point, Bethlehem is, is a nothingville. So a, a stranger, a foreigner working in your fields is obvious. So, but he doesn't know who she is. So he asks the foreman, who is this person? And we have this threefold comparison. She is a Moabite who came back with Naomi. Um, She's asked permission to, to glean in the field, and she's been diligently working with little rest right up until this time. Now, Boaz, Boaz at this point has a lot to think about because he knows the story. He's heard the rumors. People talk. He doesn't know her, but he knows her story. So he's, he's putting all, all this together. She's the Moabite who arrived with Naomi, and therefore, she's possibly related to Naomi through, through marriage. He knows that she's poor because there she is gleaning in, in his field. He knows that she is humble and courteous because she's asked permission from the foreman. Is it okay if I, if I work here? Is it okay if I glean in, in this field? Um, he knows that she's hardworking. The foreman says she's been working ever since morning. And so the first impressions that Boaz has of Ruth are rather favorable. And we see our first impressions of Boaz are rather favorable. And the question before us again is, is this chance? Is this really a coincidence? Or is providence at work? Is God working behind the scenes, bringing them together? But, of course, there's a serious impediment to this story, and that is... Boaz is an observant Jew. 
she is a Moabite. And ever since the time of Abraham, Jews were not supposed to mingle with the Moabites. This got much more serious during the time of Moses when the Moabites tried to resist them. They tried to hire Balaam to curse them. Eventually they seduced the Israelites away from God. And as a consequence, there was a permanent ban that Moabites could ever belong to Israel. So it's not just that she's a foreigner of a different race. You couldn't be much further away. A permanent ban against Moabites. Verse 8. <clears throat> Boaz says to Ruth, Now, listen, my daughter, don't glean in any other field or leave this one. Keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Haven't I charged the young men not to touch you? And when you're thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. And she fell on her face. Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves, you know, right up to where the ladies are gathering, or let her, let her pull up plants or uh, stalks from there. Uh, don't reproach her, you know, like say, stay back, we're working here, to stay out of my way. Also, put out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and don't rebuke her. Now, here's an interesting thing here. In this culture, it was expected that a man be an authority over a woman. I'm not saying it's right. I'm saying this is what the culture dictated then, that any woman would be under the headship of a man, if not her father or her husband, then her brother. She, there would be some man... Uh, over her. And yet, Boaz, uh, his first question is, to whom does this young woman belong? He's asking what man is over her. And when they say, well, she's the young widow that came back with Naomi, he's clicking, there is no man over her. What does Boaz do at this point? He steps forward and he acts, he takes this position as a father over her. What is he doing? He's providing for her protection, the, the thing that she desperately lacks. This dangerous business being a woman without a protector, even more so if you were a foreigner, because people would take advantage of you. You might be physically molested. Remember, this is the days of the judges. This kind of stuff happened. Women were not held in very high regard. Women are not equals. Women are barely property at this point. And he steps forward, and he's offering her protection. Verse 8, he appeals to her as my daughter. And having 
his, he, he tells her to, to work closely in his field, to stick around the other women who are doing their work there. He invites her to eat with them. He tells the reapers, the men of the, the, the working group, he tells them, you know, be, be kind to her, don't reproach her, don't speak harsh to her. He's providing her with protection. And the thing that's most phenomenal, he acknowledges, he says, I, I recognize you left your homeland, you left your family, and you have come here, this is the, the coolest part in the text for me, seeking to find refuge under the wings of the mighty God. See, she has made a full disclosure that she's abandoned the gods of Moab. She is looking for protection from God, not from some other man. She's looking for God to give her this protection. Of course, God is doing so, it just so happens, in the, under the human agency of Boaz. And he's, he is providing this care for her. You know, this book is often loved, cherished, admired as a romance story. People love the book of Ruth because this is a, this is a phenomenal ro romance story. At this point, there's no romance here. This is not romance that's taking place here. Now we, because we're Americans, we think that this is how marriage takes place. You, you find someone that you're attracted to, you find out if you have compatibility, and if you do, romance starts and then marriage. But in other cultures, and in this one, that's not what happens. People get married and then they find romance. People get married for lots of reasons, but romance is not one of them. Notice Boaz is speaking to Ruth as his daughter. He's not approaching her as some good-looking babe. You know, we highly, um, we highly regard physical characteristics. That's not happening here. He's coming to her as, as a father, and what he admires about her is not her appearance. There's nothing said. We don't know if she's good-looking. We don't actually know how old she is. What does Boaz admire about her? He admires her character. He admires that she's seeking refuge under the wings of Israel's God. Now, Naomi's pretty much told Ruth, your chances of getting married if you come back with me to Israel are nil. So this is not a romance story at this point. Again, Boaz is impressed with character. He says, you know, I'm totally aware of all that you've done for your mother-in-law since, since your husband died. I'm totally aware of how you came here and you left your people and, and you've come and embraced God. He knows this about Ruth. He knows that she is a, a woman who is loyal and she's courageous and that she's shown resolution to, to abandon her gods, to come to Israel, and now to glean to supply uh, food for Naomi. But there's something else about Ruth, however, and that's that persistent problem of her being a Moabite. That Israel was, the Jews were to have nothing to do with Moabites. They were not to intermingle with them. But hasn't Ruth shown something different here? Because she, the Moabites were were uh, banned because they were seducing Israel. What about a case where this individual was not trying to seduce 
the Jews away from their God, but had abandoned her own God and embraced the God of the Jews. What about the fact that she's a widow and she's poor? The very ones that the law tells us that we are to, um, to care for. Is she still to be banned? Here she has abandoned her gods and her people like Abraham did. Abraham was an idol worshiper before he became the father of the Jews. Isn't that what Ruth has done? And she's embraced the, 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 the Lord God of Israel. Verse 17. <clears throat> so she gleaned in the field until evening, then she beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley. That's about 30 pounds of, of, of uh, grain. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over from after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? Where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I worked today is Boaz. Again, we picture here the super abundant supply that the field of Boaz has provided for Ruth. Behind that superabundant supply that the field of Boaz provided was the man Boaz. Behind that, behind this godly man of Boaz who was providing was a God who was providing superabundantly for Ruth. She brings back to her mother-in-law 30 pounds where there, she left with empty cupboards. Now that she brings this, she's, she's got a heavy sack of, of threshed grain and she brings her, her doggy bag back to share with the mother-in-law. She staggers under the, the load of this tremendous blessing and Naomi is, is wowed at this point. Where on earth did you go to get such an abundance? Whoever Whoever's field you're working in must have been a really righteous dude to have provided you so abundantly. And Ruth says it, his name was Boaz. Again, here's where the story turns because Naomi has left Bethlehem full. She arrives back empty. She left blessed. She arrives back bitter. Here they are even in the house of bread, and they're completely destitute. The cupboards are empty. But here's where the story changed, because the great reversal has begun. Verse 20. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, you shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and the wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Here's a curious thing we just need to throw in here. Verse 20 calls Boaz a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer is part of the clan. He didn't have to be the head of the clan, but he had to be a direct relative. A kinsman redeemer's first job was if you got so destitute that you had to sell yourself into slavery to pay your debts, the kinsman redeemer had the obligation, if he could, 
to buy you out, to buy your freedom back. If you got so poor that you had to sell your property to, to live on, the kinsman redeemer was supposed to do what he could, if he could, to buy your property back, not necessarily for you, but to keep it in the clan so that the property wouldn't be lost to the clan. One other interesting job that the kinsman redeemer had was if somebody in the family was murdered, the kinsman redeemer's job was to search that murderer out and kill him. That's one of the extra jobs, one of the extra bonuses of being the kinsman redeemer. In any case, um, we'll, we'll come back to this concept of kinsman redeemer later. I'll only mention it now because the, the narrator has. But in any case, as one commentator puts it, Naomi learns that Ruth has met up with Boaz, and so now the son rises in her life again. And that's where chapter 2 ends. You know, so much in our lives seems coincidental or haphazard or unplanned. But it's faith that teaches us that many of these accidents in our life, these coincidences, are really the unfolding plan of a loving Heavenly Father who's working in our life His good purposes, working for our good. Why God hides Himself so often in the orchestration of life and history, I don't know. That He does is a very brute fact. You know, the God's working behind the scenes and he chooses to remain anonymous most of the time. And so much of our life that seems unplanned or accidental or coincidental or fortuitous is really God working behind the scenes. And that is part of our Christian faith, our Christian testimony. It's the, con it's the uh, conviction that, that uh, a providential, sovereign God is at work even in our lives. And it teaches us to look at the events in history or the events in our lives and, and not ask, why is this happening to me? But rather, Lord God, what are you hoping to accomplish here? You know, and how can I work towards that, towards that end? So Ruth, now in Boaz's field, teaches us to be looking for those providential acts of God in our lives and to reckon with God at, at every turn of our life. God. God is aware, and God is not indifferent to you. God loves you, and he's working behind the scene. It just so happens all the time today. Let's pray. I'll invite the men, if you'll come forward, for distributing the elements, and Charlie and Linda, if you'd come forward at this time. Um, let's pray. Father God, we uh, thank you again uh, for your word and ask that you would allow your word to have its effect in working in our lives. Sometimes it's not theology. Sometimes it's not Christology. Sometimes it's not eschatology. Sometimes we just need to be reminded that you love us and that you're at work in our lives. Now, Father, as we begin to pass these elements out, we acknowledge that uh, these things, these elements, represent the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And so we set aside these common elements, this bread and this wine, to represent the body of Jesus and his blood shed for us. And as we do, we set aside our common, ordinary, profane lives, and we ask that you would use them for a sacred and holy purpose. And we do so in the name of Jesus. Amen.
I've heard it said that a man would climb a mountain just to be with the one he loves. How many times has he 